Hey everybody, welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. It's Matt here, and at the end of this episode, I'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free Journey app where you can access all of our recent message content. And actually, the app's the easiest way to share all this content with a friend and to keep up with everything going on around here at Journey. Just search Journey Calway in your app store. Now, most importantly, I hope this message inspires you to take your next step in following Jesus. Hey, so as a communicator, let me tell you what y'all just give away one of our secrets. So let me tell you what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take uh, the beginning of our talk and we're supposed to start with some common ground and get everybody on the same page. And the reason for that is because every single crowd, and it's certainly true for us every week here at church, uh, there are people from all different spectrums with all different beliefs. And so you just try to find some common ground. Uh, you don't want to start with something that's going to be divisive or start with something that's going to cause people to you know, just shut you down and not listen at the beginning. And I'm taking all of that advice and I'm throwing it out the window today, but I'm telling you up front, okay? Because I want to start with something that uh, not all of you will agree with. And the reason I know that's true is because every single week uh, here at our church, we have people who some of you grew up in church or you've been a part of a church for a while and uh, you've been following Jesus for a while. But we also have every single week uh, those of you who don't believe, those of you who aren't sure, you're skeptical, those of you who had bad experiences at church and somebody convinced you to come give this one a try and they told you, well, it's different and I can't explain to you how it's different, just come and you'll see, you know. And so you agreed to come because they wouldn't stop pestering you and inviting you, so you finally came. We, we have people from all different spectrums, people who believe in God, people who don't believe in God. Uh, believe it or not, every single week. So if you're in the camp of, I'm just not sure I believe any of this stuff, uh, you are not alone. There are people in the crowd every week like you. So because of that, I realize, okay, we got people in all different, uh, with all different perspectives when it comes to faith. And yet what I'm going to say, at least for those of you who aren't sure you believe, this is one of those deals that you're going to go, oh, Matt, this is just so simplistic. You're so naive, and I get it. I'm just admitting it up front, okay? I get it. So uh, that is true, but I want to go ahead and share this with you because here's one of the things that I believe so deeply. I don't know why everybody would not want Christianity to be true. I just don't understand. I don't understand why everybody wouldn't want Christianity to be true. Not the version of Christianity maybe that you grew up with or that you saw as a kid. Maybe not the version of Christianity that caused your parents to give up on church and to walk away. Not the version of Christianity that, you know, would, didn't have any answers to any of your questions. As a matter of fact, you couldn't ask questions. When you tried to ask questions, they said, no, 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 you don't have enough faith. You don't ask questions. You know, you may have grown up with a version of Christianity that just seemed so certain about everything and there was no room for mystery and there was no room for well, I don't know and there was no room for well, what about this we're just there's just no room for questions I'm not talking about those versions of Christianity but I don't know why everyone wouldn't want the original version of Christianity the version that Jesus introduced to the world I don't know why everyone would not want that to be true and I realize that sounds a little simplistic and a little naive because some of you don't believe in that and you're going yeah Matt listen I don't know how intelligent, rational people can believe the stuff you guys believe. I mean, y'all seem to be normal, but, but you believe some stuff that just makes no sense. So I, I don't believe it's true, and I totally understand that. I totally understand that. But here's what I want you to understand. There is a big difference between I don't believe it's true and I don't want it to be true. Those of you, I run into people all the time like this, who say, well, I just don't believe it's true. I, I get that. I understand exactly where you're coming from. But people who say, I don't believe it's true, are people who are going, you know what? The evidence that I have seen, the evidence that's been presented to me, the facts that I understand as of now have led me to the conclusion it's not true. But people who say, I don't believe it's true, are also people who are open to accepting the fact it could be true if there's more evidence, more information, more facts presented 
that lead them to a different conclusion. So I totally understand those of you who go, no, I just don't believe it's true. But that's very different than saying, I don't want it to be true. People who say, I don't want it to be true, are basically saying, I am shutting the door on the possibility it could be true. I'm not looking at any evidence. I don't even care where the evidence leads because I have a personal bias against Christianity. So I don't care what the evidence says. I don't want that to be true. And I have a hard time understanding why anyone would take that position. And the reason why, and the reason I think everybody should want to be true, is because of this single central idea at the very core of Christianity, and it's summarized in one word, grace. Grace. You, you know what grace is. Grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. Now, you didn't use this terminology. You, never call, you didn't call it grace, but this is what we all want when our guilt is exposed. You remember when you were a kid and you came home, probably as a teenager, and some of you are teenagers now and you've had this experience. You, you came home and your parents or you know, your guardian, whoever it was, they were sitting there and they had all of the evidence on the table, and you immediately knew, I'm busted. You remember that moment? We've all had at least one of those moments where you walked in, you went, oh no, they found out. And you knew in that moment, your guilt was exposed, and there was no way to talk your way out of it. There was no loopholes. There was no way to work your way around it. You couldn't convince them it wasn't you. You couldn't blame it on your sister. This time, they weren't going to fall for that. You know, they just, you knew, I'm done. And what you craved and wanted most in that moment was to get less or different than you deserved from your parents. We also had this experience, a lot of us at school, when we got called into the principal's office, right? Or some of you, you've had this experience with a boss, and you walked in, and you knew it was, you were dead to rights. You were guilty, guilty, guilty. You hadn't done it, or you had done it, and you know, there was no loophole. There was no way around it. You couldn't talk your way out of it. You were just guilty. And whenever we find ourselves in one of those moments... We do not want what we deserve. We want something different than we deserve. And we never use this word to describe it, but what we're actually craving most in that moment is grace. Now, here's what makes grace so complicated. There's a flip side to it. It is the thing that we want and crave most when our guilt is exposed. But the flip side is grace is what we're hesitant to extend when confronted with the guilt of others. Isn't this true? Especially if it's somebody who hurt you. Or even more difficult, if it's someone who has hurt a person that you love deeply. Now, all of a sudden, when I am confronted with the guilt of that person and the hurt that they brought on me or someone I love, I am so hesitant to extend grace to them. I want justice, fairness, and punishment. That's what I want. Justice, fairness, and punishment for them. I don't want to be giving them grace. No, I want them to get exactly what they've got coming to them. This is why grace is so refreshing when you receive it. And it is so disturbing when you have to extend it. But I'm telling you, and this is what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. Grace really is the unsettling solution for just about everything we face, especially when it comes to our relationships. Especially when it comes to our relationships. So for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about what this looks like, and we're going to talk about what it looks like in light of the Christmas story, but we're not going to take the angle that you guys you know, are probably most familiar with. We're going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle. Listen, as a pastor, and this is something I shouldn't admit, and not every pastor is this way. This may just be me. As a pastor, I always dread Christmas a little bit, which sounds odd, but the reason I dread Christmas is because there is one story, and it never changes. So you guys walk in every week going, yeah, 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 we know. And I start reading a Christmas story, and you go, oh, yeah, 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 we know. It's not like at the end one year I can go, oh, and in the town of Bethlehem was born baby Yoda. And then everybody's like, whoa, 
That's where he came from. You know, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. I, I see which of you have watched Mandalorian and which one hasn't. So anyway, you, you can't do that. You know, every year it's the same thing. Every year it all unfolds the exact same way. But I'm telling you, there was a lot more about the Christmas story that was happening than just Mary and Joseph and a baby in a manger and, you know, all the angels and the shepherds and the wise men. No, no, no. There was something way more important going on in the middle of the Christmas story. So we're going to take the next three weeks to talk about it because at the very core of this story is this idea of grace. Now, let me start by giving you a definition of grace, okay? Grace is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. This is all it is. It is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. So, when someone shows up when they should walk away, that's an expression of grace. When somebody leans in when they should lean away, that's an expression of grace. When someone initiates a conversation, when clearly it's not their responsibility to initiate it, it's the other person's responsibility, that's an expression of grace. When someone extends forgiveness, when there's no reason to extend forgiveness, when the other person does not deserve forgiveness, that's an expression of grace. When someone fights to reconcile a relationship, when in reality it's the other person who should be coming trying to reconcile, that is an expression of grace. And it is undeserved, it is unearned, and it is unearnable. This is so important to understand. Because the minute that you think you deserve grace, the minute you think you have earned grace, the moment that you think your grace is earnable, then you've actually lost grace. You've lost the thing that you need most. It's like grace, trying to earn grace or deserve grace, it's like trying to plan your own surprise birthday party. It's impossible. The minute you start planning your own party, it's not a surprise anymore, is it? Same is true of grace. The minute you try to earn it, the minute you think you deserve it, you've actually shut yourself off from the very thing that you want and need most. Grace, by definition, is undeserved, unearned, and unearnable. It cannot be anything else. The other thing about grace that's important to understand is it is entirely relational. In other words, the only way to experience grace is in the context of relationships. Relationships are always the carriers of grace. Relationships are the tracks on which grace runs. You cannot experience grace apart from relationship. You can't experience grace without one person extending it to another. A relationship is absolutely necessary. And if you think about your life and the moments that you would say, well, I didn't get what I deserve there. I got something different than I deserve, better than I deserved. You might not call it grace, but if you think about those moments, what was extended to you that you appreciated so much was extended by someone. It never happens in isolation. Now, this is why grace is at the very core of the Christmas story, why it's central to what we celebrate this time of year. Grace is what Christmas is all about. And grace like Christmas, is fully relational. If I could say it this way, we would have never known the grace of God if we hadn't experienced the presence of God. It's impossible for human beings to understand the grace of God apart from there being a relationship with God that is personal. There has to be a relational component to it, and this is why Christmas matters so much. Christmas is what made God personal to everyone. Christmas is what made God relational. Christmas was God saying, they don't get it, they don't understand it because they don't get and understand me, so I'm going to show up in human form, in flesh and blood, 
And I'm going to be with them and I'm going to live among them. And I'm going to extend grace to them as a carrier relationally of this grace. And we call his name Jesus. That's exactly why Jesus came. And the early followers of Jesus, they understood this. As a matter of fact, John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, as an older teenager, John was invited by Jesus to follow, and he spent three years, now think about this, three years with Jesus 24-7. So he saw things other people didn't see. He got to have conversations other people didn't get to have. John was there in the inner circle with Jesus for three full years. And then John was the only disciple that we know of of the original 12, the closest disciples. He was the only one that we know of who was standing there when Jesus was hanging on a Roman cross. The rest of them had fled. But we know John was there because Jesus looked down from the cross, imagine this, and spoke to John, and it's recorded, spoke to John and said, John, I want you to take care of my mother. John was standing right by Mary. Imagine that. And Jesus said, now, from now on, John, I need you to take care of my mother. So John was there at the cross. He saw this with his own eyes. John was one of the first people to walk in the empty tomb three days later and with his own eyes to say, oh my goodness, something's happened, something's changed, and I believe. John had such a unique perspective, and so when he got near the end of his life and people were saying, hey, you got to write down what you've experienced. You can't just keep telling us because you're going to die soon. And all of his other friends had already died. They'd all been martyred. So John is one of the last, if not the last eyewitness And so they say, John, write down. Or maybe they said, John, just dictate it to us and we'll write it down. And I mentioned this about a month ago. There was a statement that John made as he began to write about his experience with Jesus. And as he began to write about Christmas, when Jesus showed up on this earth and why he showed up. John did not write like Matthew or Luke. He didn't give all the details about the angels and the manger and none of that. John wrote from a big picture, 30,000 foot view perspective. And he said, I'll tell you why this was so important. I'll tell you what's central to the message of Christmas. It's this. He said, the word, talking about Jesus as God, the word became flesh. John said, I know it's hard to understand, but I have become convinced. I came to the conclusion that that was God in a human body, that that was holiness with human hands. He says, the word actually became flesh and bone and made his dwelling among us. To which still, John, it just still took his breath away to that day because John was going, I don't understand. God didn't show up and announce things to us. That's what he should have done. Instead, he showed up and he lived among us. It couldn't have gotten any more personal. It couldn't have been any more relational. And then John says this, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one only Son, who came from the Father. And I want you to pay attention to this phrase. He says, He, that is Jesus, was full of grace and truth. John said, when you ask me why Jesus showed up and what he was like, the the best way I know to describe it is Jesus was full of grace and full of truth, not a balance of. See, this is what we all do. We all tend to be a balance of truth and grace. Sometimes we're truth and we just let people have it. Sometimes we're grace and we just let it go. Or some of us, we, all of us lean one way or the other. Some of us lean way more to the truth side, don't we? So we have a hard time demonstrating grace, but we're going to tell you the truth and let you know about it. Some of us are almost all grace, and so it's always, it's okay, and we just let it go and, you know, give people a pass. Some of you grew up in homes like this, didn't you? Some of you grew up in homes where you had a parent that was more truth and another parent that was more grace, and they kind of balanced each other out. Some of you grew up in homes where both parents were all truth. Others of you grew up in homes where both parents were all grace, and y'all are the ones in counseling now. Because it, do- it messes you up a little bit, doesn't it? You're like, I didn't even know there was another side of this. You know, you never saw it. I get it. 
Some of you grew up in churches. Isn't this true? You grew up in churches that were all truth. And others of you grew up in churches that were all grace. And that messes you up too. Here's, here's the problem with being a balance of grace and truth. We all try to do this. Let me just balance it. You know, no, no. The problem is when you try to balance grace and truth, you lose a little bit of both of them. John said that is not what Jesus did. Jesus was full-on grace and full-on truth at the exact same time. Every scenario, every situation, every conversation, he was full grace and full truth. Not a balance of, 100% of both at all times. He never watered down the truth. He never dialed back the grace. Jesus would call sin, sin, and sinners, sinners. That was truth. And then he laid down his life for sinners by paying for their sins, which was grace. This is why a few years after Jesus had left this earth, John was writing a letter to a group of Christians. And he's trying to describe what God is like to them. And he writes these three words, which have become fairly famous. He says, God is love. You probably have heard this. God is love. Well, John, describe for me what Jesus was like. Well, he would say, here's all I know to tell you. It's not that he chose to love. It was the very essence of who he was. God is love. What do you mean by love? I mean he was full of grace and truth. That's what love looks like. You want to know what the purest form of love looks like? It is when someone is full of grace and full of truth at the very same time. That's what unconditional love looks like. John, how did you arrive at this conclusion? And if you'd have had a chance to ask him that, I think he would have just looked back on his time with Jesus and started telling you stories. He'd have probably told you about the time he was with Jesus and the other disciples were there and there's a large crowd of people and they're sitting on the southern steps of the Temple Mount. Now, if you're not real familiar with this, the Temple Mount's where the temple was in Jerusalem and for Jews in Judaism, this was the most holy place on the planet. The Temple Mount was sacred. And Jesus one day is standing there as this large crowd is around, you know, sitting on these steps and Jesus is teaching them. They're asking him questions. And think about this, you've got to understand the context. Just over the wall, they can hear the bleating of the animals who are being sacrificed on the altar. This was a ritual that Jewish people had done for centuries, every day. And they would sacrifice these animals on the altar as a way to you know, cover over their sin for another day. You could hear these animals being sacrificed. Just over the next wall was this small area known as the Holy of Holies. Jewish people believed it was the most sacred, holy square footage on the planet. They actually believed in the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence resided. This is where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that Ark were the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. This was such a sacred space to them. And Jesus is there in that setting on the southern steps of this Temple Mount. And as he's teaching, the religious leaders walk up, and they're dragging along with them a woman who clearly is in trouble. And they're doing what they did so often. They're showing up to try to present Jesus another question, another situation that's going to trip him up and cause him to say something or do something where he'll discredit himself, and the crowds will stop listening to him because they just can't stand it. They're too threatened by him. And they drag this woman up, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they look at him and they say, last night we caught this woman right in the act of adultery. Now, our Jewish law, Jesus, says a woman who's caught in adultery should be stoned to death. So what do you say? Maybe they're holding the rocks in their hands as they say it. What do you say, Jesus? 
Do we stone her or do we not? And they're expecting Jesus to go, oh, no, 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 you don't stone her because he's known for his love for people. And then the minute they, they says that, they're able to say, oh, so you don't value our Jewish law anymore. And then it would create division in the crowd and it would begin to cause him to lose credibility. And instead, they're shocked. And I think John was shocked that day. I think this is why he never forgot this. John's sitting there watching this uh, interaction take place. And he lo- here's Jesus look at them in front of this crowd. And he says, well, your law says to stone her, so go ahead and stone her. And everybody's thinking, are you kidding me? But Jesus knew they weren't about to stone her on the steps of the Temple Mount in the most holy place on the planet to them. They weren't going to do that right here. So he says, go ahead. You just, that's what your law says. Go ahead and do it. And then he says this. But, by the way, whichever one of you has no sin, why don't you be the first one to throw your stone? And then the writers of the accounts of Jesus' life tell us that he knelt down right next to this woman. He kneels down beside her, and he begins to write something in the sand. And as he's writing, this woman is there thinking, I don't know what's about to happen next, but she's terrified. There's been no compassion, no mercy, no love demonstrated towards her. Can you imagine how embarrassed she must be? And Jesus just keeps writing. Now, what's interesting is none of the people who write the accounts of this tell us what he wrote in the sand. It would be incredible to know. Scholars have debated this for centuries, but I think I've figured it out. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, well, I don't know why y'all are laughing. I'm as smart as those guys. I'm pretty sure what he was doing was he wrote nice, naughty, and he started making a list. And all the religious leaders' names ended up on the naughty side. Because the story tells us that beginning with the oldest ones, the veteran ones, the most seasoned religious leaders, they all started dropping their stones and walking away one at a time. And I think the reason they did that is because the minute they saw their name on the naughty list, they thought, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to write down next to it why we were naughty, and then everybody's going to know, and we're going to be embarrassed. So they just all got out of there. So by the time he gets done, he looks up. Nobody's left there. None of the religious leaders are left there. And then he's kneeling down next to this woman, so he looks over at her right in her eyes, and he said, hey, does no one condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And he looks back. It's, it's such a beautiful moment. He looks back at her and he says, well, neither do I condemn you. And you kind of get this, you know, heartfelt hallmark moment, don't you? It's like, oh, that's so sweet. And then Jesus ruins the mood entirely because he's not done talking. He won't keep his mouth shut. He can't stop right there. He says, neither do I condemn you. And this relief comes over her. And then he says, in front of all of the, these people who are still standing there, this crowd that was listening to him teach, they're still there. In front of all of them, he then looks at her and he says, Now, leave your life of sin. It felt so good when you told me I wasn't condemned, but now you're calling me a sinner? Yes. Yeah, but what about Jesus? She had daddy issues growing up, and you know she's looking for love in all the wrong places, and you know she hangs out with friends in low places. I don't know what song you like, but I'm done quoting them. So, you know, she's Jesus is going, no, 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 no. I, I'm not giving her a pass. I'm not giving her a pass. 
What she did was wrong. It is a sin. I do not condemn you. There's your full-on grace. Now leave your life of sin. There's your full-on truth. You got to stop doing that because it's going to crush you. So to Jesus, to look at her and say, well, I don't condemn you, go right on, and not to tell her, you got to stop doing this thing that's going to crush you would not have been the most loving thing to do. He was full-on grace and full-on truth. And John, I think, was thinking about that. As he wrote these words, well, God is love. And this is exactly what it looked like. I watched love in flesh and blood be full of grace and truth. I bet John was thinking back to that day where he stood at the foot of the cross with Mary right beside him. And he watched what unfolded. See, there was a conversation that took place that day that doesn't get a lot of attention, but I'm telling you, it was shocking. I think it was one of those conversations John never, ever forgot. Because Jesus was not crucified alone. Here's how Luke tells us it transpired. He says, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with Jesus to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there. Next slide. Along with the other criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, if you've ever wondered, well, why was Jesus crucified? Well, merely from a human perspective... The reason he was killed is because those Jewish religious leaders couldn't handle love, grace, and truth in a human body. They couldn't handle somebody in flesh and blood who was full-on grace and full-on truth at the same time. It made them too uncomfortable. It was way too unsettling, and they had to put a stop to it. That's why they drove to have him crucified. And so he's hanging there on a cross. Now think about this with a criminal on either side of him. If you know much about Roman history, you know the people that the Romans crucified in in many cases. These were the worst of the worst. These were people who were vile criminals. These were people who were brutal. These were people who were so violent. And there Jesus is hanging between these two guys. And Luke tells us this conversation happens. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. He said, aren't you the Messiah? Well, save yourself and us. In other words, there's one guy hanging next to Jesus who's going, you know what? I don't think I deserve to be here any more than anybody else, and I'm going to take my anger and my bitterness right with me to the grave. So Jesus, come on, I shouldn't be up here. Why don't you do something to save yourself, and why don't you save me while you're at it? Because I deserve to be saved. But there's a criminal on the other side of Jesus. And Luke tells us the other criminal rebuked the one who was hurling insults and said, don't you fear God. Since you're under the same sentence. Now notice this. He says, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, he goes, there's there's no argument. We deserve exactly what we're getting. But everybody in this community knows. This man right here in the middle, Jesus, he does not deserve to be here. He has done nothing wrong. And then this criminal makes such a courageous request. Here's what he says to Jesus. He looks at him and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because I know I'm getting everything that I'm deserving. But I'm going to go ahead and ask. This is such a ridiculous request. I'm going to go ahead and ask. I'm getting everything I deserve. But when I die and I'm on the other side of death, I'd really like not to get what I deserve there. So would you remember me? Would you give me, Jesus, what you're going to get on the other side of death? Even though I don't deserve it, I'd really like it. It's such an audacious request. 
It's unbelievable. I mean, this guy can't do anything to make up for what he messed up. He can't promise to change. He can't promise to make restitution. He can't promise to fix what he did. No, no, no. Change from a cross is meaningless. Change from a cross doesn't actually change anything. What's the guy got, 30 minutes left? What's he going to do in the next 30 minutes to make up for all he did? In all probability, this man has either hurt or possibly killed someone. And I'm guessing that the family of the people that he hurt so deeply, that family is standing there at the foot of the cross. They're wanting to see justice served on this person who killed their loved one. And can you imagine what they're thinking? What would you be thinking if you were standing there in their shoes? And they hear this man look at Jesus and ask for this kind of mercy and grace? Jesus, on the other side of death, would you just not give me what I deserve? They're going, no, 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 no. He needs to get exactly what he deserved. We want justice to be served. We want punishment to be inflicted. Not just here, we want to be inflicted there. Jesus, you can't grant this request. That's not fair. Can you imagine how they must have felt? When they heard Jesus look back at this man and say this, Jesus answered him. Jesus answered him, which, by the way, if you've ever wondered, does God hear the prayer of sinners, this answers your question. Yes, absolutely he does. By the way, the prayer of sinners are the only kind of prayers that are prayed. So if you think that doesn't apply to you, then you should reflect on that. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Think about this. Jesus looks at a man who is the vilest and most violent of all people in that society. And he says, you're asking for a forgiveness you do not deserve and a future in eternity with me that you have not earned. And I'm going to give them both to you. And you can imagine the family that had been affected by this person's crime has to be standing there going, that's not fair. That's not right. You can't do that. Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to do it. The reality is we've all felt that too, haven't we? We have all seen grace extended to somebody and gone, that's not fair, that's not right. And you are correct. This is what you have to understand about grace. That like life, grace is not fair. It is never fair. It is disturbingly better than fair. It is unsettling better than fair. It's way better than fair. Now, the truth of the matter is, even though we get so angry when someone who's hurt us or hurt someone we love, when they don't get what they've got coming, when fairness and justice don't happen to them, it makes us so angry. The truth of the matter is, none of us actually want fair. Because you know what would happen if we all got fair? We would all have no hope because there would be no grace. See, anytime I find myself going, well, that's not fair, and I don't want them to get grace. That's not fair, and I don't want them to be forgiven. That's not fair, and I don't want them not to have to pay. Every time I find myself doing that is an indication that I have forgotten how messed up I am. It's an indication that I have forgotten I am a sinner myself, and that if I got what was fair, I would get all of the consequences of my sin. I would get God's justice rained down on me. The old school term was I would experience the wrath of God. All the consequences of my sin would catch up to me and crush me. That's what fair is. 
And anytime I don't want somebody else to experience grace because it's not fair, it just means I've forgotten how messed up I am and that I've received something that wasn't fair to me either. I've received something I did not deserve. Because like life, grace is not fair, but we do not want it to be fair. We want it to be way, way better than fair for us. But this is the tension we feel. It's the thing that I crave most when my guilt is exposed, but I am so hesitant to extend it to somebody else when the guilt of another person comes to light. You say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean God doesn't care about justice? No, Jesus cares about justice. Believe me, Jesus understands justice better than any of us because it was the justice of God that was all put on his shoulders when he was on the cross. Jesus understands that if we had to experience the justice of God, it would crush us. It's the whole point of Christmas. It's why he came, so we wouldn't be crushed by it. Jesus understands that justice matters. He just knows we don't need to experience it. Jesus understands that justice crushes. Jesus understands that sin carries with it consequences. And in many cases for us, our sin is already starting to crush us. You see, every sin that you and I commit, it comes prepackaged with a penalty. Every sin carries with it a consequence. And sometimes people are like, oh, I think God's trying to get me because I did that. No, no, no. Your sin is getting you. God's not trying to get you. Your sin's already got you. The whole point of Christmas is that God showed up to try to get you before sin completely got you. That's why Jesus showed up. Our sin gets us. It always gets us. So Jesus showed up and he said, no, 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 no. Justice has to be served. We're going to talk more about this next week. Justice has to be served, but I will take care of justice. I want to give them something they do not deserve. I want to give them something that is not fair. I want to give them the opportunity to experience grace. But it can only be extended and offered relationally. So Jesus showed up to be a carrier of grace. He showed up to make God personal. He showed up so we could experience something we did not deserve. So yeah, like life, grace is not fair. But none of us want it to be fair. We'll take grace every day. It's why we should want Christianity to be true. Even if you don't believe the evidence points to the fact it's true, you should really hope it's true because at the core of it is this idea of grace, and it's the thing that we all need most, and it is the unsettling solution for just about every relationship problem any of us have. And oh, by the way, this grace that our Heavenly Father extends to us, it is not a blind invitation. This is the essence of unconditional love. Your Heavenly Father knows everything about you. You're not pulling anything over on Him. He knows everything. It's all truth. He knows all the truth. And He extends grace to you anyway. He gives you grace to protect you, and he, or truth, excuse me, to protect you, and He gives you grace to redeem you. And you and I need both. Now, we'll talk more about that next week, but just imagine with me for a minute. Imagine if we lived in a world, let's just be personal, imagine if in your world there was more grace passed back and forth in all of your relationships. Imagine if in your world there was a lot more grace shown because you understood how much grace had been shown to you. Imagine if in your world you could be full of truth and grace with the difficult 
unloving, hurtful people you encounter. I'm not saying you don't have boundaries. I'm not saying you don't call it out. I'm not saying you, you try to act like, oh, that's not a big deal, and it didn't hurt, and it's, we'll just move on. No, 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 no. That's not being truthful. It's being full-on truth. It's having boundaries. It's saying, that was a problem. That hurt me. That created consequences. It's being full-on truth. But then saying, you know what? With this truth, I'm going to extend unconditional grace. What if you showed more of that? And the only reason you showed more of it is because you knew you had been shown a grace you didn't deserve. So how could you not show it to someone you did? Imagine how different our world would be. I'll tell you what would happen. See, we all buck at that and we all think, no, 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 I'm not showing grace to them. They hurt me too deeply. They hurt that person I love way too much. But you know what would happen if you could be full of truth and full of grace towards that person? You would be free. You would be healed. You would be able to move past what happened. You would be able to leave justice in the hands of those whose responsibility it is to administer justice, ultimately God. And you can move on freely without carrying all that baggage and all that hurt. Because you recognized, I've been given a grace I do not deserve. I will extend a grace towards them they do not deserve either. Like life, grace is not fair. But it is way better than that. And it is the unsettling solution for every relational problem and tension and hurt an awkward situation you and I have going on in our lives. And we will have going on an encounter over the next few weeks. At the heart of it all, the answer, the solution, is grace. And we'll pick up right there next week. Let me pray for us. Father, we'll just be honest and admit, it's not hard to extend grace in some cases when there's a minor slide or you know, when we were hurt a little bit, but we person came back and they apologize and we can tell they feel bad about it. That's one thing. But boy, we all struggle to extend grace to people who hurt us deeply or hurt those we love deeply and they don't seem to care. In some cases, they do it over and over. In some cases, there's no remorse and they're just going to, you know, they're just going to look for ways to keep hurting us. So would you help us to know what to do with this? Would you help us to know what it looks like in our situations when we're trying to demonstrate full truth and full grace at the same time? Would you give us the ability and the strength to do that? And would you remind us this week that we have been shown a grace by you we do not deserve? And so when everything in us rises up going, but it's not fair, it's not fair, I don't want to do it, Help us to remember what you have done for us is not fair either. But you have shown us a grace we did not deserve. And because of that, help us to lean in and to show grace to others when they don't deserve it as well. To simply give to others this season what has been given to us unconditionally. We're so grateful for that grace, and it's in Jesus' name who gave it to us that we pray. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast, it would really be helpful. And if you live near our church, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our phenomenal children and student environments, just visit us at journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. 
Look forward to seeing you soon.